Just throw 57 up on the grill. A lot of guys throw the 57 and a Royer. When I see just a Royer or a ribbon mic in front of my amp, I immediately go over to my amp and turn the treble up by about two numbers from four <laughs> to number six. I guess I like the warmth, but I don't know. Every great rock album ever recorded was a 57 up against the yeah. grill. And I think people like to overthink things. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Other World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and use Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, Presona Studio One, Reaper, or anything you can think of. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix masterbundle.com to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Smith Curry, a session player primarily on pedal steel and slide guitar, who has also toured with acts ranging from uber star Kid Rock to British synth pop stars Erasure. As a session player over the past two decades, Smith has worked as a sideman with over 100 major label country artists such as Rascal Flatts, Taylor Swift, Randy Travis, and his credits include CMA, ASCAP, and ACM Songs of the Year. His playing can be heard on Randy Travis's number one Three Wooden Crosses, Jason Aldean's number one hit, Why, Billy Currington's number one hit, Good Directions, among many others. And he's played with major label master sessions for legendary producers like Paul Worley, James Stroud, Don Cook, Blake Chansey, Kyle Lenning, Chuck Howard, and Ron Chansey. His compositional talents can also be heard alongside Jerry Douglas's and Ricky Skaggs in the score for the HBO movie, The Grave, and on his upcoming solo record, American Idol. I've had the pleasure of working with Smith many times and always love his ability to bring a variety of sounds to a record, whether it calls for a traditional sound or something totally wild and unexpected. Today, we're going to talk about pedal steel and slide, what it means to be a session player here in Nashville, and anything else we love about making records. So please welcome Smith Curry to Recording Studio Rockstars. Smith, 
Are you ready to rock, dude? I am ready to rock. More than ready. Dude, you got a good, strong voice for podcasts, too. Right <laughs> off the bat, man. I like yeah, it. Yeah, fun. So, so give us a kind of a brief intro to who you are as far as like, how'd you get to Nashville and getting into recording and making records for a living? I came to Nashville in 94, actually, to play bluegrass dobro, believe it or not. And um, just kind of... Uh, I think one of the things you asked me was to think of an inspirational quote, and this is kind of a strange one, but um, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. So, I right mean, on. you know, I moved here to play Bluegrass Dobro. I saw a bunch of my friends that I met early on getting big name uh, gigs with big name country artists. And so somebody talked me into picking up a pedal steel. So I started doing that. And um, within a year, I was working with Doug Stone uh, on the road, and he was really big guy in the 90s, a lot of great hits. Uh, his first 16 singles went in the top four, I think. Wow. Um, so that was like your first gig. That was like was my with, first well, gig. I hadn't star. been playing Steel very long. I wasn't great, but most of his stuff was ballads, and I was able to get a good tone and play in tune. So it worked out. Um, and uh, just kind of, um, just kind of, kept my options open. And whenever I saw an opening, I might, you know, kind of change my direction a bit. You know, um, I was thinking, you know, when I got here just to make a living would be amazing playing music. And then I thought, you know, wow, getting a big gig with a big country star would be amazing. And then I was like, man, I want to, I knew a couple of people that got big rock gigs. And I was like, man, I want a big rock gig. So I started touring with Kid Rock. And I thought, you know, man, I really want to play on a hit song on the radio. So I played on a couple number ones. And so it kind of just, um, hopefully I was grateful what I, for what I had achieved, but I'm um, always kind of excited about the next thing. And then, you know, started producing more records and that's been pretty good as well. Um, a record I produced last year uh, on this girl, Michaela Lynn, just uh, one country album of the year up at the East Coast Music Awards in Canada. Nice. So well, was, way to go, dude. Yeah, that was pretty exciting, Congrats. too. So, Where did you move here from? Uh, the I'm Bay a, Area, San Francisco area. I was going to guess maybe like a battleground state with a, <laughs> with a quote like that. <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, the Bay Area was an amazing place. I mean, you know how much amazing music has come from there. Yeah. But and, so, and you grew up there. I grew up there. And so you were like right in that San Francisco scene going back to when? When was the first time you were around music in San Francisco? And all that? You know, I was mostly in the folk and bluegrass world there. Um, and I did front of house sound for the Freight and Salvage, which is a kind of famous folk and bluegrass club in Berkeley. And um, that was kind of my scene when I was there. And um, I worked a lot with kind of some of the new folk was what they were terming it, guys. Were you a dead a fan of the Grateful Dead? Oh, up? yeah, man. I loved it. Well, I mean, I'm from Palo Alto, which is where they were from. Okay. And, right, uh, so in the 80s, they were popular, but not like what happened to them in the 90s. And so, you know, they would play Frost Amphitheater at Stanford and I would go. And then they would play, you know, Jerry Garcia band would play the Keystone Palo Alto, which was not a big club, maybe a few hundred people capacity. I ride my bike down there because I wasn't old enough to drive and get in. And, and you could just walk right up and stand right in front of Jerry Garcia and watch him shred for three hours. That's you know? awesome. Man. That's got to be so <laughs> it great. It was incredible. Uh, and um, yeah, it's just 
Palo Alto is a really neat place. It's changed an awful lot with the influx of money that that Silicon Valley sure. has brought. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. sure. So you come to Nashville. Um, uh, Doug Stone was he a rising star at that point, or was he? Oh, he was a really big established country singer. At that okay, point, all right. You so know. you just happened to get a good gig doing that. What do you think got you that gig? <laughs> Their last, his last steel player was a much more accomplished player than me, but he, the guy was just kind of a dick, I guess, and so. <laughs> He just thought, eh, this guy seems pretty cool and laid back. So he hired me and I was able to grow into the gig. Fortunately, he gave me a chance to to get better on the job. Because like I said, I mean, pedal steel, I mean, I'm not bragging. It is literally the hardest instrument there is. Oh, I'm totally with and, you on and, that. And, um, and I hadn't been playing it very long. It's the grand piano of instruments that you have to tune yourself. <laughs> tune yourself constantly while you're playing and... I mean, you not only tune the strings, but you tune the pedals and knee levers as well. For those out there that are unfamiliar with it, it you know, usually has either 10 or 20 strings if it's a double neck. Wow. Um, but then pedals and knee levers that change the pitch of various strings um, to make new chords and make new licks and stuff. And so there's we'll, all- We'll dig into that a little yeah. bit more too, because sure. I, th I feel like it's, we've got an opportunity to break it down for people. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I love about being in Nashville is being able to record pedal steel. I mean, I'm not sure what other city I could have landed in where I would have had the opportunity to work with all these amazing steel players. And it's such I have such huge respect for the instrument and for the players like yourself, because it really is complex. I mean, you look at it and even when you're trying to talk to a pedal steel or, you know, player and and maybe as a producer kind of guide an overdub long, it's, it's like, what do you even, how do you even describe what all that is? You know? Well, and I think a lot of producers are kind of afraid of it and don't understand it very well. And thusly, it is like literally the slowest moving field of session musicians. It's kind of been the same half dozen guys for the last 15 or 20 years doing it. And, um, I was kind of the new young guy from age 40 to age 50. And now there's a younger, newer guy than me that's been getting a good amount of work. But um, I mean, it's kind of, I think it's just because producers don't really understand. They're like, hey, just get the same guy that's on everything. You right, know? right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the first pedal steel player that I worked with was um, Al Perkins. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, he came fantastic. in and, and I was like, oh, this is cool. Who's this old guy playing? And he's, you know, he's very... Um, What's what's the word? I, um, I don't know why the word fragile comes to mind, but I feel like his his approach to the sound and the instrument is very it's delicate. That's yeah. the, that's what the word I want to use. And then, but at the same time, I learned that he had played on um, Exile on Main Street with the Rolling Stones. I'm like, no way, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's and it's cool. I think you guys also because of maybe of what you said about there not being you know just a glut of steel players means that you you cover all the variations of slide and, and steel on all kinds of, from rock to country and whatever. Yeah. And I think the guys, you know, that have done well, especially lately as country has gotten more pop are multi-instrumentalists. So they're still great on pedal steel, but they can pick up a guitar and lay down a rhythm track or, you know, um, you know, I'll, I do a lot of that as well as even banjo and mandolin, but if I had my druthers, I kind of stay within the family and do a lot of lap steel and dobro and mm -hmm. pedal steel. Those are kind of my three favorites. Yeah, I, for some reason, pa Russ Paul comes to mind too. Sure, somebody who came exactly. In and did a lot of He's kind of about as busy as anybody. And here. I know Jim Hoke also plays pedal steel. 
you know, as well, right? I I asked him because I was curious. Uh, everyone was kind of under the impression that he just took it up a few years ago, but and that is true. But he said he had one when he was in his twenties that he spent a lot of time on because yeah. we were all shocked. Usually, a guy that plays a ton of different instruments really well like that. We're always like, yeah, but he doesn't play pedal steel. <laughs> and with him, you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> um, so, but he has like, a, you know, the guy is like a musical genius, right? And so he has a lot of really great knowledge. It's like kind of more the physical technique that maybe you can tell that he hasn't been wearing it out for the last 30 years or something. Right, um, right. But he, man, I love hearing him play. He has such cool ideas. Um, all right. So let's see. Uh, well, you know, I haven't actually asked this question in a while, but sometimes I like to ask our guests to share a story about an important failure. Um, you know, here you landed in, you've got a great gig, everything's going great. Have you got any stories uh, you want to share about how shit just fell apart or didn't go the you way know, you expected? I had never been fired off of a gig or a tour or anything like that. And I won't say who the artist was. It was somebody I played on a couple of his records, a really big country singer, and um, he asked me to go out on the road and I hadn't been out in a little while. I'd been staying in town doing recording work. And I thought, you know, maybe this would be good. And I went out for, you know, a few weekends and I got let go and I was really shocked. And I just had been like staying up late on the bus, arguing with my buddies and having fun. And they were just really sensitive to that. And they didn't give me any warning or tell me to tone it down or anything. And I was pretty shocked. And it actually wound up being the best thing that ever could have happened to me because uh, I started staying in town. My wife ran into a bunch of health issues and I was able to take care of her. And my recording work really took off from there. That's so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how um, things that can seem kind of like disasters along the way turn out to be the best thing that happened to you. Exactly. You know, if you've got the right mindset, I think if you yeah. really, if you, if you really, um, address the the challenge head on and move through it, then it becomes a real growing experience. Definitely. So that was really a great thing for me. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, now, how about the other side of it? How about something that became a real like feeling of a moment of success for you along that way? Um, I don't know. I guess uh, the first time really hearing myself on a song that was popular was, was kind of uh, played on Randy Travis, the acoustic version of Randy Travis's Three Wooden Crosses. But it was by far the biggest song of the year that year. Was that with Jason? I mean, with Kyle Lenning? It was with Kyle Lenning. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he had just mixed a record that I had played on, and he liked my dobro playing, so he called me up. And I always kind of associate the name Kyle with younger folks, and I didn't know who Kyle Lenning was. You know, of course, he's a great producer, a ton, yeah. a ton of stuff. And I was following the directions to his house for this overdub that he called me up to do. And the house has kind of kept getting nicer and nicer and, you know, He's got a really cool place with a really nice studio separate there. Mm -hmm. And um, he had me in to play on this song for Randy Travis. It was kind of Randy's biggest hit that came really late in his career. Um, and it was the acoustic version. It wasn't the main version. But still, they wore that thing out on the radio that year. And, you know, it was really, it was kind of so great to just, hear my playing on the radio a bunch of times. So, Yeah. And that, and it's the radio. That's the thing. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, where did you hear it? I guess today you might hear it in a different context, you know, but, um, but you'd still could hear it on the radio for sure. Yeah. With pop country terrestrial radios, still a big thing in a lot of ways for, for good and bad. Um, 
but yeah, of course, you know, I mean, you can play on any old thing and it'll be on Spotify the next week or something. Right, right. <laughs> um, but now you've also sort of branched into um, music that's composition for, for film and TV and stuff like that. You want to talk about that experience a little bit? Uh, that was pretty early on, uh, the, the one you mentioned earlier that was on my bio. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a cool HBO movie. And they asked me to kind of come up with a couple of things. The um, Grave. It's, was yeah. it a spooky film? Yeah, it was It was cool, you know. Uh, so is Pedal Steel spooky? Is is anything with a slide? Is it easy to get spooky? Pedal Steel especially, right? <laughs> or but Lap Steel, you know, kind of scrape the bar on the strings yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I'd like to do more of that. You know, it's, um, it's still kind of a sector of the industry where there's still kind of a lot of money to be made if you get placements, you know, that do well and stuff like that. Yeah. Sync licenses and stuff like that. So master use. Um, so did you get, is your experience doing that as a, you know, a writer of those songs? So and if so, can you explain what it means when you get a sync? You know, how does that break down for somebody? Yeah, yeah. that was kind of early on. And whoever was in charge of that kind of, I got the shaft a little bit. So <laughs> is that, yeah. it's probably important to get used to the shaft at the beginning of what you do, you know? Oh, I wish it was just the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, awesome. uh, we're in a interesting time. Um I went to play on, I don't know if I should use the artist's name, literally one of the biggest artists alive working today's record. Yeah, keep, keep us guessing. Uh, and I did the overdub at the producer's house on a Sunday night. And so when I went to sign the union card, uh, he said, and we won't say this didn't happen on a Sunday. I thought, oh, what a, you know, I didn't really think about it. I just signed the card. So Sunday sessions are time and a half. And I get a call later from an intern or somebody over at the record label. Hey, can we say this session happened on a different day? And I said, no, this session is for so-and-so. I mean, literally the biggest artist in music working today. First of all, it's for them. Second of all, the producer said we wouldn't do that. You know, that artist, I know for a fact would be pissed if he or she knew that the label was trying to cheat session player out of several hundred dollars. Right. Um, I mean, if there was one record that year that we knew was going to make a lot of money, it was that record. Yeah. And well, it it's did. good that you stuck to your guns on that. Yeah. Uh, man. Do you feel yeah. like that was something that took a, took a little while to learn is just how to stick to your guns on stuff? It is. And sometimes I think it can screw you. I did a thing last year for a really big artist that was going to be in a big Jerry Bruckheimer movie. And, um, I wanted it to be on the union card. I said, you don't have to pay me any extra, but, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of money on the back end of this. The film musician, a film musician, secondary market fund is like a really great thing for us. And if it's not on the card, you probably won't get any of that. And, um, like a week later, they were like, well, the film people just decided to use a string section there instead of your Dobro. And I don't know if that was because I was sticking to my guns or not. Um, well, I guess either way, it didn't matter because if you if they used the Dobro but yeah. didn't do it the way you wanted, it wasn't yeah. going to help anyway, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. But I would have had some good bragging rights. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit more about you settling into being a, a session musician in Nashville. Sure. Um, you know, you described a, a, a shift that sort of happened um, forcefully that that became an opportunity. But like the actual act of becoming a, mus- a session musician, do you, was a, does that feel like kind of like a, a sudden thing all of a sudden? Or is it a no, gradual, it, you know, you just do more and man, more of it's it? A, it's a hard thing. A really good friend of mine, uh, Justin Ostrander, great guitar player that does a ton of sessions here in town he talked about playing sessions, learning how to play sessions. Well, is a whole separate 10,000 hours. You know, there's this, and this is a stupid arbitrary number that somebody pulled out of their ass somewhere that it takes 10,000 hours to get good at something. Which I think breaks down to about five years of 40 hour weeks. So it would be, you know, 20,000 hours to get good at pedal steel. You know, there you go. Um, That's because it's double neck. (laughs) That's 40,000 hours. Um, So, but his point, I thought, was completely valid. You got to learn how to be great on your instrument, and then you have to learn how to play sessions. And it's a total chicken and egg kind of thing, because nobody's going to hire you if you suck being on a session. And then how do you get the experience? You know, I was really lucky. There was a, you know, they kind of call it a demo mill. Um, and that's where I got my start. And a lot of the music wasn't great, but they, you know, I was in there all the time you know, working on stuff. Um, fantastic engineer here in town, Bobby Holland. Um, oh, Bobby's great. Yeah. Amazing guy. One of my best friends. He mixed all that stuff and he actually calculated, kind of went back and looked at stuff. And we have worked on well over 10,000 songs together. Wow. You know, mostly through this uh, Studio 515. That's a lot demo. of songs. So Whoa. Studio 515 was the demo? Yeah, it was studio? the place that did a ton of demos. And why 515? What, what happened to 615? Well, right, that right, was okay. their physical address in Berry Hill. On okay, right, yeah. Uh, West was that, and is Irish. that near County Q? That was another one I knew. Kind of the other side of yeah. East Iris. Yeah. West Iris. So Berry Hill, um, you know, the County Q is the studio that I had been in, my buddy Chuck Foff. Went, um, and roommate went off to go do, you know, engineering work for, and it was my first exposure to that world of demo work. And it's like, it's pretty amazing. Maybe, maybe you a, want to describe a Paul, what a demo session Paul is like. Paul Skolton that owns it was kind of the, the inventor of the slam session where you have different songwriters on the same session. And, and but they, you know, arguably County Q is the busiest studio in Nashville for the last 20 years, you know, maybe not so much just lately, but Paul's one of the greatest dudes. He helped Bobby get his start, you know, helped a lot of great engineers. Super cool guy. Um, I was just working there a couple of days ago. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, so, you know, you show up. Sessions in Nashville start at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. Which ones do you like the best? (laughs) I just care about how good the music is. And even then, you know, people complain man even a playing bad music with great players and great dudes and you know to some extent the worse a song is the more important you coming up with a great hook for it is or something like that you know um i always think of the quote the in theater there are no small parts only small actors you know there's oh, that man. there's that guy who comes in and steals the show with just he has a stupid two line part or something, but he's just so magnetic or something. That's funny. And, um, so, you know, just, uh, to complain about the music or whatever, it doesn't 
help anything. That's a good reminder too. And it's a, it's a good bit of encouragement because I think, you know, I work with a lot of independent artists. And so I've had a lot of experience making records with people that maybe nobody's really going to hear that record, but it can still be an important part of the whole career path of, of making records. And you still have an opportunity to pour your heart into it and really just try and do your best work. And then, you know, as a session player, just, you know, being that journeyman guy that does puts in his, uh, I was out, at, I took this to heart too. This is about five years ago, maybe, maybe a little more. I was at County Q and JT Cornfloss, kind of legendary dude who's been in town and worked, started getting real busy in the nineties. And he's just one of everybody's favorite people and players, just amazing electric player. And we were, he had just come from like a Luke Bryan record or something like that. And what we were working on was just terrible and horrible. And, um, you know, everybody else got their first part down and was off getting coffee and whatnot. And he put down a great first part and he's like, yeah, you know, I think this song could use another part. And, you know, he's just in there by himself, just hammering away on this. And, you know, he could have just said, yeah, I'm done. Um, but his idea is like, you know, you have me for three hours and I'm going to do everything I can, whether this is like, the coolest record or the worst shit ever. You got me for this time and it's going to make me a better person. It's going to make, you know, this record a better thing. And I just really took that to heart, you know. You know, a thing about songs, um, you know, I think a big key point in what makes songs successful versus ones that aren't is, is basically the singer, the artist and the lyrics and who they are and what, how their voice sounds. Yeah, we still have the opportunity. It's the the chords are still chords, the melodies are still melodies. We can make those, you know, as great as we want to. Exactly, you know. So sometimes if I'm on something that's less than stellar, I'm still having a great time trying to come up with a cool part or, you know, go over to my pedal board and come up with a sound I haven't thought of before. Um, you know, I I'll have a great time playing music regardless, you know. All right, so let's jump in and break down the steel guitar, the pedal steel guitar a little okay. bit more. Um, we've got 10 strings, or if it's a double neck, you've got 10 strings and then a second neck above that that's another 10 strings, Yeah. plus all these pedals. Um, what do the pedals do? So on the E9 neck, which is the most common one, uh, they raise and lower different combinations of strings so that you can basically get... So on a steel guitar, you're not playing... The left hand, you're not fretting on the instrument with your fingers. You have a bar. So that's its basic shortcoming. So that's what the pedals and knee levers were invented to overcome. So you could get different notes and different chords. Right. Because with my fingers, I can play a half step exactly. up on a different string. So on pedal steel, the E9 tuning, you can actually get all of the diatonic chords without moving the bar. So the E9 neck, if the bar is on the third fret, that's a G chord. And you can press two pedals down, and that's the A minor, the two minor. You can use this knee lever, and that's the B minor. That's the three minor chord. You press these two pedals down. That's your uh, C chord. That's your four chord. You press, you know, a combination of pedal and knee lever, and that's your five, seven, five dominant. And then uh, press the other knee lever. That's your six minor chord. And is that across all 10 strings or different combinations of strings? Most of them. It's a little tricky. Some of yeah. them become passing tones and some of, some of them you probably need to avoid to have some, you know, or else something, the chord has a weird tonality to it, right. but, right. Um, but across a lot of them. So, yeah. So why it, do you move your slide around? <laughs> oh, that's where the beauty comes in. The moving of the slide 
plus while you're pressing different pedals and knee levers gives it that really crazy you know certain notes are going up while other notes are going down sometimes steel players love to get that kind of contrapuntal thing going on when possible um it gives it that fluidity that's just uh you know, every now and then a smart ass keyboard player will like look over at me and bend a chord with their uh, pitch wheel. And I'm like, no. And I like do a chord where one note's going down, another note's going up and then another note's staying the same. And it's like, that's what it is, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. All you right. We'll never fake this. And, and um, again, yet another reason why it's so hard to explain as a producer, you know, what you're hearing or how, what you're reacting to and, um, I, I find that I, I default to little, you know, like physical dance movements, like, you know, and that's about the best and hopefully that yeah. helps, you know, uh, but maybe, uh, how, how would you describe the difference in voicings on a steel versus, um, guitar and piano? Are they similar? Or are they very well, different? Usually you're using less notes on a steel and you're less worried about having the tonic in there, if that makes sense. So, um, and, and rock stars, the tonic is the root note the of root the chord, note. right? So yeah. if it's a C chord, you don't need the C in there. Exactly. Because everybody else is holding that down. Uh, so how many notes does that leave us? That leaves us a third and the fifth. Third and, and the fifth or whatever color notes. Um, but yeah, even though we have five fingers on a hand, a thumb and four fingers, usually steel players just use two fingers and a thumb. And you have a thumb pick and two finger picks. Right, right. Because um, you're just not really playing more than three notes. And does your the palm of your hand, does it also rest on the string and okay, help you? Okay, well, the old school way is, okay, it's called blocking. And what the deal is, is if you're playing guitar, as soon as you lift up a finger on your left hand to play another note, the previous note stops ringing. But since on pedal steel, you have this big bar covering the strings, it doesn't work that way. Those strings will keep ringing out. And the old school way of making those notes stop before the next one starts is kind of bouncing the palm of your right hand on the strings to kind of go pop, pop, pop from note to note. And that's note your picking, picking hand. Yeah, your picking hand. The newer way of doing things that kind of started getting popular in the maybe late 80s or so um, is pick blocking. And it gives you so much more freedom, but it's infinitely harder to learn. So any note that you pick with your right hand, you stop that string from ringing with a different pick that's on your right hand as well. So it's it, it's like 10 times the work and it's, it's, it drives you crazy learning. It's like learning. the claw hammer banjo style of a, a pedal steel. And, um, but it's kind of worth it after you invest thousands of hours of your life that could have been spent with friends and loved ones, you know, just sitting in a basement practicing these horrible finger exercises, you know. <laughs> and it gives you, basically it gives you just a really clean And way more freedom delivery, to let right? certain things ring while other things don't, stuff like that. You know? Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, now, what about the range of the instrument? Um, you know, a guitar, I can kind of picture how low it's going and how high it's going. Uh, bass is a little lower than that. You know? Yeah, the way pedal steel fits in, especially with modern pop country, is much a higher a higher register. Um, you know, I just don't get to play that low string that often. You know, especially the more pop it is, the more higher register you are, because uh, there's so many guitars going on a bit lower. 
So, so, um, so let me let me help me continue to uh, visualize this. So, if I if I'm playing open chords uh, and I'm doing kind of a country song on the acoustic, you know, E G C D A, whatever is going on down there, um, where relative to the guitar neck might your voicings for the the steel be living? Oh uh, yeah, good question. Um, basically, the best way to think about a pedal steel is so much of what you do is basically like two women singing in harmony. I mean, that's how I kind of envision it. Um, uh, you know, the more modern thing, it's less harmonized thirds and sixths, but that's the old school thing for sure. And sometimes the newer stuff. Um, but yeah, usually, up, uh, you know, where you would be playing on the third string on an acoustic, on a, on a regular guitar, Third, uh, second, and first strings, you know, just any on any fret, you know, those strings is kind of usually, the high strings of the guitar. The high strings yeah. of the guitars. Yeah. Okay. And then um, when I think about country music, I'm thinking about major chords and minor chords, you know, root, third, fifth, you know, uh, triads. Um, but the pedal steels, you know, brings in these sixes and stuff like that. Ha um, what What sort of Generally speaking, is there a way to think of, of what kind of harmonies you would be drawing from um, with the pedal steel? Part? Well, certain things, you know, if you play the sixes and the nines too much, that's going to sound Western swing. So kind of got to stay away from that for the more modern things. Um, and then even be more careful about how you bend things can sound more or less, quote, country. Um, but yeah, uh, you know. The prettier stuff, you want to work off of the major seven type tonalities. Even if the guitars don't go there, you can go there. So a really common thing is when everybody goes to the four chord, you still kind of stay on the one and gives it that major seven type really pretty thing. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. a good little, t little tip right there. Yeah, I might yeah. try that on a guitar. Yeah, it's kind of Dan Dugmore was the first, you know, real uh, progenitor of that type sound i think and it's kind of kind of the uh senior guy still working as much as anybody fantastic player great yeah. guy famous for playing on the blue bayou linda ronstadt oh cool solo but he's played on a million records in nashville and just kind of everybody loves him cool guy all right so um let's talk a little bit about uh, what it means that you know pedal steel is paired with country music which, what thoughts do you have to share about that? You know, that? it's it a mean? little unfortunate that, you know, it's such a flexible, interesting, and it's been used on a million other things, you know, everybody from Elton John to Steely Dan, um, you know, uh, obviously steel guitar originated in Hawaii uh, before there were pedals. Um, and, you know, what has traditionally been a very white instrument has been kind of popularized by Robert, uh, Robert Randolph, you know, mm -hmm. who's a fantastic player, but uses it quite differently. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, the world is open, you know, it's just kind of waiting to be used on anything and everything. Yeah. Um, so why do you think it originated in Hawaii? Is there any, um, reasoning behind why the steel came from there? And was it electric or was it acoustic before it that? It started acoustic. Yeah. And um, then I think kind of the blues guys were, and some of the bluegrass or country guys were the first guys to kind of borrow that sound. Um, 
It was just a fluke, I think, that it started out there. And then, you know, Hawaiian music had that. It's not because you can't keep the action low enough on a guitar in Hawaii with the humidity <laughs> well, or something like that. Well, they have that great slack key acoustic playing, too. That's a really neat style. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think kind of um, Bashville brother Oswald was one of the first country guys playing dobro. And oh, cool. then Josh Graves was the first one that really dug in and played bluegrass dobro. And that's kind of what led me to Nashville. I was um, at a bluegrass, well, bluegrass and folk music festival near Yosemite, California, when I was, I think I was 20. And um, I heard, I was there with my girlfriend. I heard this music down there. And we walked down to the stage, and Jerry Douglas was playing with Russ Berenberg, and my head just exploded. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's what I want to do. And I just kind of threw myself into that instrument. And, and you just started with Dobro. Yeah, I had had, um, I was doing a lot of Delta Blues at the time, you know, bottleneck slide, you know, um, Robert Johnson type playing. Yeah. And um, and then I just kind of threw myself all into playing, you know, on the lap, Dobro style. So bluegrass. you would dig this. I mentioned that um, Tim Easton was in here for the interview before you, yeah. and um, he's doing a record right now where he went to Oklahoma, I think, to go, or no, excuse me, to uh, San Antonio, Texas to go record in the same hotel that Robert Johnson recorded in. Oh, wow. I think that was how the story went. So he's making that part of his, uh, his new, um, his new record. Um, and I, I guess I imagine that, you know, if you're, if you're out on the West coast, Palo Alto, um, that's about as close as you can get to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. So there must've been some influence on, you know, the music that was Man, happening in the folk uh, scene. There. You know, there was a lot of great bluegrass players, uh, in the Bay area when I was there. I mean, they're still there. Uh, Guys like Mike Marshall, Lori Lewis always had a really popular band with great players. Scott Nygaard was one of the best flat pickers I've ever heard. Uh, and they're out there doing it still. Um, so there was a really vibrant bluegrass scene there, surprisingly. Uh, you know, people always associate that with maybe the Carolinas and Nashville and stuff. But So I guess, you know, coming from bluegrass, there's a natural transition to country. And, you know, if country becomes electrified... Yep. The steel became electrified, the yeah. pedal steel. So that's kind of what happened to me as well. Yeah. Um, but I still, man, I love playing bluegrass dobro. Why don't you break down a dobro and and its tuning for, for the rock So, stars? I mean, you could tune it to anything, and a lot of people play lap instruments in different tunings, but um, standard dobro tuning from the low string to the high string, six strings, just like a guitar, G, B, D, G, B, D. And that sounds counterintuitively like you wouldn't have many options since it's just two major triads you know it's the same three notes in two octaves but uh you can get the major or minor six you, you know you're playing with a bar so you're very limited it's like playing guitar with one finger you know so to hear somebody ripping it up on a dobro or on a lap steel have a little respect because it's like they're playing guitar with one finger on their left hand didn't Jerry only play with like two or three anyway on his right hand? I think everybody uses the <laughs> same thumb and two fingers, but on the left hand, you're, you got one bar and it's like playing guitar with one finger. So any kind of tuning, what tuning you're using is extra important because it enables you to get around more or less. Um, also with that tuning, okay, obviously playing out a G is good since it's a G chord and you can get, Using three strings, using different open strings, you can get um, the three minor chord, the six minor chord, and the four minor chord without using any bar slants, slanting the bar, or any kind of trickery. 
Um, but then also playing out a D is amazing as well. Really versatile key. And then you can use a capo. So between those two tunings and a capo, you really can get around well in almost any key, if that makes sense. So in other words, uh, short of introducing a capo, if you've got songs that are in G or D and you're thinking, oh, I bet Dobro would sound good on this, you're right. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, you can always detune or use a capo. There are special do Dobro capos. Um, it's kind of funny, as the last 10 years, I've done way more recording work than live stuff. My ability to play Dobro or lap steel and crappy keys certain crappy keys has kind of gotten worse because I always just retune on the Because you got the, the luxury of being yeah, able to Yeah, you have the time that. to, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, what are some of the common misunderstandings about pedal steel and or lap steel and dobro? Well, a lot of people just don't know what those are. I mean, and then I can't count the number of times that, you know, playing at a club or something and a drunk girl come and ask if she could play my keyboard, you know, <laughs> let her sit down at the pedal steel. And then she like realizes something's horribly wrong. You know? <laughs> um, a friend of mine said he got off stage after playing pedal steel. And, uh, some guy was like, man, that was awesome. But your band sure broke a lot of strings tonight. He goes, uh, not really. Why? He goes, well, you were up there making strings the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Making strings. I remember Jeff Beck saying something about lap steel looking like you're ironing, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what well, yeah, what is what's it like by the way to um cuz cuz you're in this sitting position yet you are rocking out. So like do, is there a conflict of 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 uh, body movement well, and dance? Well, that's why you know, you know sometimes when I'm performing uh the more rock and stuff, sometimes the tones lend themselves to a lap steel which you can play standing up and run around uh and so that's kind of a little more fun too. So, you know, everybody's not just, you know, everybody else is rocking out and you're just sitting there ironing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, now you have a lap steel that sort of is shaped with a little thing to kind of go around your waist and stuff like that. Is there a name for that style or that, that version yeah, of lap steel? There's uh, not, not really. Um, that the one I mainly use for that kind of thing has a little separate bar that attaches that kind of helps you hold it up like that. And it's a belly bar, they call it, because it goes up against your belly. But, um, and then Dobro, learning to play Dobro or lap steel while standing up is actually surprisingly difficult because uh, the neck kind of wobbles around and learn. So you've actually gotten pretty good at the instrument sitting down where it's very stable. And now all of a sudden it's wobbling around. And unlike a regular guitar where your thumb is wrapped around the neck of the instrument, anchoring your fingers. Uh, you don't really have that luxury playing dobro or lap steel. Yeah. And so kind of one of the things you need to learn early on for dobro and lap steel is use your pinky, keep your pinky on your left hand, always on the strings as an anchor, kind of the way in lieu of having your thumb wrapped around. Yeah, the it neck keeps the, the instrument in check and, and your hand knowing where you are probably yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you find that playing slide instruments you can close your eyes and play more than if you were playing a, a fretted instrument? I would think less. I mean, you really got to, and that's a, it's a real challenge in the studio is looking at the chart and your left hand at the same time. As I recall, you, you know, I gave you a music stand. You're like, no, no, no. I like the chart down low. For better. lap steel and dobro, all the times I'll just put it on the floor. And for pedal steel, I like a, a music stand that goes really low. So you're just kind of looking straight down across your left hand at the chart. Um, Whereas if it was higher up on a music stand, you'd be flicking your eyes back and forth. Um, and that's where 
how a number chart is written out kind of has a real impact on you. Sometimes people like to write long uh, rows of numbers and it, it's really hard. You look down at your hand for a second and you look up and it's just a giant page of numbers. Um, so sometimes the two column method of writing out a national number chart is helpful for all me. Right. All right, dig it. We'll, we'll jump back into that in just a sec. We'll take a break now for the jam session. Rockstar is a reminder that I've got a YouTube playlist of, of Smith's great work in the blog post. You can just go click through on your mobile device or on your computer, wherever you are listening to this and go check that out. And when you're there, please remember to subscribe and hit the notification bell on YouTube and drop in a comment below. If you're watching this on YouTube, we'll see you in just a minute for the jam session. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy. Are you ready to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level and make your best record ever? Then visit the Academy to find the course that's right for you. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you are ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own record, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSonus Studio One. These techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you are using right now. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins in Pro Tools. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads to mix in your own studio and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to MixMasterBundle.com to get started for free now and look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Other World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Smith Curry joining us here on Recording Studio Rockstars to talk about making great records, playing pedal steel, playing lap steel, just being cool. Um, you ready to jam? Yeah. All right. So uh, let's talk more about charts, man. <laughs> break break down what a song chart is for the rock stars. Um, maybe, maybe explain basically what it is and then maybe get into like, you know, when people, how people seem to make really good ones that are great for you and ones that don't work so uh, well. The Nashville number system needs to be exported to every other city in the world is brilliant. Um, the only time it gets a little less than fantastic is when there are 
a lot of key changes, like if hardcore jazz where the key keeps changing, then that kind of, it loses its value there. That would have been the New York number system, right? Uh, yeah. So what it is, you know, if a song has a, is in the key of A and there's two bars of A, you write the number one twice. And then if there's a, a bar of E, you write the number five once, you know, so it's, you know, right up the scale. And then certain things, like if there's a bar where it's two beats of A and two beats of E, you would write a one and a five and then underline them. That denotes that it's all part of the same a bar. split bar, right? Split bar. And then, you know, if you go to the E just for beat four, you would just put like a little hash mark above the E that would show that that's just a beat four. Okay, chord. so it would say it would be a one five underlined with a little hash mark above the five. Yeah, and I would show yeah. you play, you know, the the A chord for three beats and then a quick, you know, beat four uh, E chord. Do sometimes people put three hash marks above the A chord? Yeah, you could do that if you want to be extra, you know. Um, and then, you know, if it's an E minor, you just put a minus sign next to the E. If it's uh, diminished, you put the little circle. And if it's augmented, you put a plus sign, stuff like that. Um, and if it's major, you don't have to put anything. You after don't put it, anything. Even if it would have normally been a minor chord. Yeah, you, you just, just put don't put anything. Okay. And then... Um, a lot of the other stuff is still kind of the same. You'd use brackets to show a, a section repeating and, and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, okay, so for a few things make us brilliant, you know, if the singer decides to change the key, you don't have to rewrite all the charts. Um, I mean, I always think in numbers, pedal steel players especially think in numbers. You know, if the bar's on the sixth fret and that's the one chord, you press these two pedals, that's the two minor, you press this knee lever, that's the three. You don't have to think about what, the name of the chord is, you know? Yeah. Um, and then even, you know, guitar players, if you're capoed up on the fourth or fifth or sixth fret or whatever, uh, and you're playing G, A minor, C, you're just thinking one, two minor, four, right? I yeah. mean, you don't want to have to transpose all that in your head and think what the names of the chords are. You just think, you you begin to learn the open tunings yeah. and, and the different ones are different numbers relative to each other. And I mean... You know, music is mathematics. It's not grammar, you know. So uh, numbers always just make sense to me. Sorry, I said no, open tunings. I just meant like uh, open, open chords. chords. Yeah. yeah, open chords. Yeah. Um, and then it does get a little tricky, you know, figuring out like you, you've you learned the numbers in one open chord voicing. And then you're like, oh, I th why don't I capo this on the five <laughs> yeah. fret and play this as a C chord instead? You know, what does that look like? It's a little bit of a mind leap, but but it is quicker, I think, than trying it's to figure quicker, it out. The other and then the other thing is, you know, the one always sounds like a one, and the five always sounds like a five. You know, so you kind of internalize that. Um, but yeah, the, I love that. Every now and then, I get on a session, and there's a letter chart. I'm like, oh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard. Um, but you know, kind of the longer I play sessions, the less I look at my chart. I think also. You just, um, you just sort of hear it in your head, just, you know, instinctively. Yeah, go. usually, you know, you usually everyone gets their charts and you listen down to the song once. And, you know, I'm not saying I know exactly what the entire song does after hearing it once, but I get closer to that. And I'd rather just kind of focus on playing my instrument than looking at. I feel like if I look at a chart, I'm more likely to play off of the chord instead of playing to the song, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and you know, as a session player, your first and primary goal is always just serve the song. You never right. inject too much of yourself. Uh, you always want to give it some personality and, you know, um, 
but you know, you got to serve the song. Uh, by the way, Rockstars, I don't know if you could hear the coffee maker shutting down in the background there, but <laughs> it just occurred to me that that may become like a, a, a theme in the second half of the podcast. Cause we always take a break and go make a coffee during the jam <laughs> session break. And then when we come back in, I forget to turn the machine off and it's just coffee down halfway is a super important part of studio life. You know, I come into a new studio. Most people would want to see what the, you know, mic pre's and what the mic locker and what compressors are, you know, I want to see, you know, I want to see the coffee we drinking situation. Good coffee yeah. or are we drinking junky coffee? You know? Yeah, exactly. If, if, how do we feel about coffee that comes in those plastic bins like Maxwell House with the big top? <sighs> There's a lot of that in Nashville, unfortunately. Is there still. really? There's a lot of Keurigs, which I have mixed feelings about. You know, I think yeah. it's a, kind of an environmental disaster. I agree. And, but, you know, it's always a mixed bag of whether it's going to be good coffee or not. But usually it's pretty good. Yeah, well, you can put good coffee in there for sure. Yeah. Um, so, all right, well, let's, let's keep jumping forward. Uh, as far as charts again... What are some things that people do? You described writing the numbers like long ways across the paper. What's what's a, an appropriate way to write I, I, the numbers? For I the prefer charts? writing them in four bar lines. So you write four bars. If the phrase really only has three bars, you would just write three numbers and move on to the next line, and then kind of do that all down the left hand half of the page, and then you put a big line down the middle of the page in the second half of the song if you need to go that far, uh, would go down on the right-hand side of the page. Okay, that's cool. just easier for me to see little four-bar segments, you know, um, instead of a giant line of numbers. Right. Yeah. And then, um, what, you know, do you put, you put like IN for intro to the left of those yeah, four? Yeah, sure. You, you mark the section so people know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then do you also tend to put lines between the verse I and the do. chorus? I do. A lot of the horizontal? time, people who write the charts don't, and that's fine. And just while you're listening down to the song, to the work tape, you might, I, I've kind of sectioned off my little sections. And it's all about just uh, uh, making the visual cue as simple and as easy as possible. Exactly. So you and can I focus think on, on other music, instruments, right? it's not that big of a deal. Guitar players can just glue their eye to the page and just play, play. Right. Because they're Whereas spreading chords. on steel and Doro, I'm really having to flick my eyes back and forth from the page yeah, to the. So that was a meaningful question when I asked you if you could play with your eyes closed. Yeah. It's a very much answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, on dobro and lap steel, you have to look at your left hand more than pedal steel, for sure. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. All right, cool. So um, any other uh, chart tips that we want to share? Uh, man, I think that that covers it. Um, are there any funky guitar, um, chord voicings that you need to know a special little well, code so, for? Well, no, I mean, I think, you know, you see a lot in Nashville, you know, on charts, uh, one over three. You know, four over six, uh, looks five just like over a seven, which is basically denoting the third in the base of a regular chord. Yeah. Um, so, but that's usually written out, and you know that's. Or a, know. how about a four over one, where the uh, the the sure, pedal steel kind of get, continues that one type. chord, like you said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I play that. I can't help it. You know. Dig it. Um, all right, so uh, let's talk about setting up your steel amps and pedals to get the right sound. Um, what do we need to know if we don't know anything yeah, about this? Yeah, I have, one? you know, I basically use old Fender Blackface tube amps, and I have them pretty dialed in for steel guitar with a, some mid-range cut out of them. I have my amp guys kind of go in and tweak a couple things. Um, and whenever I get to a studio and somebody's like, man, I got a really great, you know, amp pretty much just like that. Let's just use mine. 
And if I like say, okay, I always wind up regretting it because I kind of have mine so dialed in with the right speaker and the right mid-range and all of that. The mid, Getting the mid-range right, you know, in so many parts of recording is tricky and so important. So what's a common error as far as mid-range goes with amps and stuff? Is that it's just the amp just is too harsh in the mid-range? Uh, it's just, it's a steel guitar thing, just trying to get that really right. Um, and... Uh, yeah. So, uh, I usually bring a Fender Deluxe Reverb. I have a 66 that I've used incessantly. I have a couple of Fender basements that I love as well. Um, and man, it's just, it's hard to get away from them. They're so fantastic. Um, I commented the other day to a friend, you know, Leo Fender, I don't know if you ever would have guessed it, but, uh, so much of the modern country and pop music is just all played on Fender, old 60s Fender guitars and bass uh, and amps, you know, Fender like bass. He just got it Fender right. Play. He just, you know, I don't think he could have ever guessed, especially all these modern tones we get, you know. Um, I've heard it described, uh, Fender described as being, uh, having the effect of breaking up the top of a sound, but keeping the bottom, the low end of a sound, uh, totally coherent and solid sure and people even think of pedal steel as being a really clean tone but just that bit of harmonic distortion that it brings um is just uh incalculable benefit uh i recently for my home studio got a warm audio la2a they call it wa2a i put that in the signal chain and I'm never going back either, uh, going through those tubes. I don't even hit it that hard, just a few dB of compression, but it just kind of smooths out the top end in a way that I'm loving. So I do a lot of tracks from the house like that. You know, people email me stuff from all over the world. You know, Nashville, we have a lot of great pedal steel players and, you know, Doe and Lap Steel guys, but um, the rest of the world, not so much. So, Well, I've always been conflicted a little bit as the engineer on a session doing uh, pedal steel overdub you know, to compress or not to compress. Uh, the, the engineer in me wants to plug in compressors and go for the sound, but the pedal steel is like, it's not like a, an electric guitar where you're just, your volume's wide open and you're, you're hitting no. one, you know, exact level and going it's for the that. the volume pedal that's constantly in play. And so you have to be really careful with compressors for sure. And um, we also definitely drive engineers and other players kind of nuts uh the older you get and the more years and years and years you get more consistent but you know especially you hit a drive pedal or distortion or something and you pick up a different instrument a lap steel or something and your level changes and of course you kind of can drive everybody a little batty with that but um yeah there's no set maximum with the instrument because you're always using that volume pedal. So I guess what I'm getting at as an engineer too, is like you do, there isn't a compression setting that you, that you're like, that's the right setting. Cause you know, if you bring the volume down, it changes. So I, I've, I tend to just go, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to let, let it be what it is, especially recording into something like pro tools. There's, there's an, you know, there is no sweet spot level for that necessarily for steel. To some extent, I'm going through that LA2A just for the warmth and the what it brings to the table. And you're and dialing it into where you like it. You know? I mean, I'm barely touching it with the compression. It's more just for the tone. Yeah. You know? um, and then, uh, you know, I can always add some compression in the mix and 
And I think I've done that, but I, but I also think that there's more of a tendency for it to be valuable to just simply ride the fader for the pedal steel sure. in the mix because, you know, you really just, it's a question of. Well, the and the right uh, compressor will change the attack since, you know, the volume pedal is such an active component. So, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about appropriate effects for pedal steel. Yeah. Well, what, what do you bring to the party as the steel player? What should an engineer bring to the party as, as doing the recording? Okay. Well, so to be a viable pedal steel player in 2018, I guess, 2019 shortly, um, just kind of being a straight, you know, sounding clean pedal steel on pop country stuff. I mean, that's valuable, but being able to do a lot of cool effecty stuff, a lot of beat synced tremolo stuff, I find really useful. Um, I mean, I, I have a really big pedal board and I'm not afraid to kind of go there. I even have like a really cool boss guitar synthesizer. I can't remember the model number, but it's like, it's like a kind of a floor model about 12 inches wide and maybe it's like 600 bucks. I wish I could remember the model number right now. SY300, I think that's it. Okay, all right. Um, really neat sounds and it tracks the, you don't need a special pickup or anything. It tracks your pitch really well. So I love kind of doing different sounds, different timbres, everything else. Um, but as far as recording me, man, I'm just like, just throw a 57 up on the grill uh, of my amp. And um, I, you know, a lot of guys throw the 57 and a Royer. I think that can be useful. I'm not going to say it isn't, but when I see just a Royer or a ribbon mic in front of my amp, I immediately go over to my amp and turn the treble up by about two numbers from four <laughs> to number six. Um, I guess I like the warmth, but I don't know. Every great rock album ever recorded was a 57 up against the yeah. grill. And I think people like to overthink things. Um, and up against the grill, we're talking about uh, physically close to the amp. So you get all that proximity, all oh, the, yeah. the warmth just, and the big, the bass boost. Just right there, you know. Um, how about as far as where it is centered on the speaker? Does it get too bright for you at times? Or too, uh, usually too about halfway between the center and the edge, you know, and on axis, just right, right there. Yeah. Uh, that is something I feel like I could experiment with more, maybe over Christmas break when I actually have a minute <laughs> to do something. The other thing I feel like I could experiment more with is different speakers. Yeah. It's something that a lot of players are kind of lazy about because it's kind of a pain to try different speakers and stuff. Um, but obviously the speaker is a huge part of your sound. I've been, uh, Warehouse Speakers is a really cool company and they've helped me out a bit. Um, and they made some great stuff. They have their kind of Vintage 30 clone that's fantastic. It has a little bit less of a mid-range hump, so I like that. Um, and I built, um, I put one of my old Fender Bassman Blackface heads into a combo cabinet. And I wanted one of their Vintage 30s but they could handle the extra power of the basement. So they were really cool. They custom made me this thing with a, a bigger uh, magnet on the back and more doping on the front. And that thing is just a hoss, man. It's so cool. That's awesome, um, man. Um, all right. So I, I will share a tip for miking up an amp. Okay. So this is one that I've learned on the podcast, having some of our guests on like Jamie Tate um, and many others. But you unplug the guitar or the pedal steel, or whatever you got from the amp, turn the volume up. And then lean in with your ear and get in close and move your ear around until, you know, one ear until you hear something. You're like, I really like that seems like a sweet spot for tone. Then I'll just put my finger there. 
hold my finger in position back way and I'll put the mic in the same Just spot. from the hiss. Just from the yeah, hiss. It's yeah. like you can you can hear the tone I've of that. I've seen people yeah. do the same thing with just the hiss and you moving the mic around. Yeah. And and I've and some people will talk about doing that with headphones on too. Do it with headphones sure. on so you really hear it in the headphones. But uh, I th- I found it to be really remarkable because you very quickly you know you get something and then you listen to it later and you're like sounds great you know yeah um, all right cool so let's talk more about your um, pedal board what yeah. are some other pedals that go into your pedal board um, so for for pedal steel delay and reverb are the most important things. Um, I've been using the Strymon timeline like so many people have. I think there's some other stuff out there now that's probably pretty comparable. And it, that thing's a little bit of a bear to use live, but in the studio, you got a lot of great options. Um, Can you talk about, um, when you talk about the delay and the reverb, and I know you have a volume pedal, what order do things go in for it to be set up? Okay, right? so for pedal steel, I always want the delay and the reverb after the pedal, the volume pedal. And delay, then reverb. What's the reason and what's the effect of that? It has to do with how the volume swells. Um, So I have another couple of like multi-effect things that happen before the volume pedal. And uh, sometimes with a really long, big reverb before the volume pedal, that bloom you can get from having it before the volume pedal is really useful. So basically the short answer is if you can do it, have both options right um i recently got the new line six hx effects and it is a fantastic piece of gear it's got tons of effects tons of stuff and they're all so much better quality than their older um m5 and m9 that they used to uh that everyone had um and uh i have it doing a lot of expression stuff i have a new volume pedal uh, this guy derek who makes i think his company's db instrument amp but he makes a volume pedal that does expression stuff when you go side to side with the volume pedal. So I can have that like increase the delay times and the repeats and the volume of the reverb and other stuff like oh, really bloom cool. and doing the uh, tempo of a tremolo, stuff like that. Um, so it's been a, that's been a real game changer. Pedal steel players, you know, as if it wasn't there. hard enough for you already. Right? <laughs> exactly. Both hands. Both knees, both feet are occupied. So I've never been able to do like a wah sound at the same time. And now I can, you know, stuff like that. So, but yeah, so now I have both hands, both knees, both feet, and one foot is going up and down and side to side while doing everything. What's left? I mean, is it going to be like a tongue controller? Uh, No, I already thought about that. The nostril flareizer. There were those breath controllers. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought about... I researched a bunch and it was going to be a pain in the butt. So it still may happen. Maybe there could be like a neck one where you like chin up and then <laughs> down. And... That sounds like kind of what the quadriplegic might have to use to uh, get his wheelchair so, around or know. something. Um, um, all right, cool. So uh, so what was it again? The Line 6 H? HX effects. Yeah, I've been HX loving that HX thing. Effects. That thing all is right, killer. Cool. I've seen you use that. Now, what about the uh, the pedal board? Is there is everybody use the same pedal board pretty much these days or what? You know, people use the pedal train system a lot they're cheap and they work with a lot of artists what, what makes it a system what? well it's just it's kind of rails and so the cables go in between underneath basically right um and it's just really light um but uh there are a lot of great custom pedal board builders here in town uh xts uh i think is the name of the guys that all my friends use they're they are not cheap, but they do amazing custom pedal boards. Uh, 
I think if I had the cheese, I probably would have them do something for me. But um, yeah, uh, I did have Eastside Music Supply wire this last one for me and they did a great job. And um, before I'd always kind of done it myself. And this time it looks so clean and, you know, you can actually fit more crap on there if you have, you know, those custom solderless things. So um, it's pretty nice having that, you know, I mean, even with them kind of hooking me up with a bit of discount as with that huge of a pedal board, it's not cheap. Yeah. So I've uh, been assembling my pedal board as part of my, you know, personal journey towards making my own music. And I realized I was like, well, shit, I can't hardly fit anything under this space. (laughs) And I started paying more attention to people. And there are so many of these little teeny tiny pedals. Like it's, it's in vogue uh, yeah, and it's for a very good reason, right? To make very narrow yeah, pedals. Yeah. Um, Moor, M-O-O-E-R was some of the, was one of the first companies to make a lot of those mini pedals and make them cheap and make them really well. Um, so yeah, those things are, they're great. I mean, a lot of them sound just as good as the full size ones. And then the other thing is like how heavy pedals are. Like my pedal board, the rails and the case together weigh like on this huge pedal board, weigh only like five pounds or something. But with all the pedals and the power supplies on there, it weighs like 60 pounds. Nice. So I wonder if some of those pedal manufacturers, they're like, we can't charge $300 for this pedal if it weighs next to nothing. Let's make it heavy. <laughs> they just put, put rolls of pennies inside it, you know? <laughs> so I can't help but think that maybe there's a little so bit Somebody's got of that a pedal on. called the penny roll, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. So what are some other cool pedals that you, so, so, so you probably have overdrive, right? Cause you, you may need it. Do you typically find that you want more than one overdrive? Yeah. It's always good to have a couple for different sounds. I mean, that's And those are the, that's a type of effect that isn't done well by the digital multi-effects units right. like the HX effects. Yeah. That thing actually does a pretty good job, but usually you want, you know, usually you want hardware versions of your, your drive pedals. Where do those go in the signal chain? They go pretty early on, you know, kind of usually you want compression, then compression and wah go very early and then, you know, drive stuff. Comes so compression. Next. Oh, but not for your pedal steel for the lap steel. You know, I've, I hadn't used a compressor on my board at all in quite a while. And, um, Robert Keeley, who's been a really good friend of mine for many years and makes fantastic stuff. He has a compressor pro and it's, it's almost like having an 1176 or something on your board. Um, you, you got attack and release and ratio and threshold and output gain. And you actually have a strip of LEDs, which shows you exactly how many dB you're compressing it with. And I actually do like hitting my pedal seal just to touch with it. Um, and then probably affects the attack. It does affect way, right? the attack a little bit, but it gives it a softness and a roundness that's really sexy. Well, and I realized that as I was thinking about that, by default, I was thinking about myself as the engineer on the other end going, what am I going to do with compression? Because it's changing. But on the front end, it's coming straight out of the pickups. Before the the volume volume pedal. pedal. So it's really neat. Um, And again, I don't touch it, but a couple of dB. Um, Sometimes for clean electric guitar, though, it's invaluable to have a bit of that. But also to have a compressor that's that flexible where you don't hear that... That sucking sound, you know. What kind of stuff did you use to put in your pedal board and have around all the time where you're like, why am I, I'm never using this or something like that? What, what kind I, of we, we, all of us kind of go in and out of, you know, I have like a 
crazy fuzz tone, which is the first thing on the board uh, that Zach Vex, Z-Vex makes. Yeah. He makes the coolest pedals, yeah. right? You know, yeah. those custom paint jobs, but also his designs electronically are so elegant. You know, he never used to have uh, DC adapter jacks on his pedals because the batteries would last an eternity. And he was really proud of that fact. That's cool. Um, but I have the octane on there, which does kind of an octave fuzz thing. It's like super wacky. That's and, the Z-Vex is the yeah, octane. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. And, um, he also has, a the Sequa, the Uwa. Yeah. I used I to have, have the Sequa. I think we were talking about this. You have the Sequa and yeah. I, I had one and I learned later that you could sync it up with MIDI. And, and I was like, one day I was like, I'm not using this. It's time to pay some bills. <laughs> <laughs> So I let it go, but so I still have that on there. It's just pretty fun. Um, people sometimes accuse me of making whale noises with it, but that's okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I have all kinds of stuff on there. Uh, you know, it's even, I'm trying to think now, uh, about the more interesting stuff. Um, I've been using just the smaller MXR reverb, uh, that they're making now. And it's a great sound. A digital pedal. reverb. I guess all yeah. the pedal reverbs are digital, right? All they have of them are reverb. And then the other thing is, um, for distorted lap steel, I still can't get what I need out of any digital delays. And so an analog, actual analog delay, I love it. it has that spongy, gritty, dark though. Um, so now what I'm using is the MXR Carbon Copy Deluxe, which they came out with like a little while ago. And that thing is killer. It kind of addresses all the problems that the first, the non-deluxe one had. Longer delay times, a switch for brighter repeats, um, tap tempo, all kinds of stuff. So love that thing. Um, and just for distorted tones, man, you can't beat an actual analog delay, I don't think. Oh, for distorted tones, you want an analog delay. Yeah. And for pedal steel, I hate an analog delay. I want a crystal clear ping coming back. But, right. Yeah. But, okay. Interesting. But yeah, for distorted sense. tones, I love that gritty, crunchy you know, so you've got the, um, the line six can give you the digital delay, but you have an analog delay pedal. The Strymon timeline I use a lot for that too, but I have that MXR carbon copy deluxe. Um, just, just, just because somebody's thinking about it. Um, what's, what should people begin to budget and set aside to have (laughs) uh, like a tricked out pedal board like Uh, yours, your ultimate one? Oh, well, I don't even really know because People help me out a lot with artist pricing or just giving me stuff on account of. But I mean, you know, getting getting the right pedals could still, uh, you know, be a thousand bucks or something like that. Yeah, or more, right? I mean, it depends if what you're shooting. And the pedal for. board itself, those those pedal trains are. They're pretty reasonable, and man. Those things are pretty reasonable. And huh. then you know, if you if you want them done right, paint the cabling and the power power supplies are expensive, and right. it's so tempting to kind of go cheap with them. Um, but you don't want that given out. MXR has, MXR Dunlop, they're kind of the same company now. They have a new ISO brick that's a bit cheaper and really cool that I've, I've been liking. And again, it's like a power brick with these little custom cables yeah. that you can run out and plug into each pedal. Exactly. And having each thing isolated is crucial. And then there, I've always noticed um, certain, like the Strymon Timeline, certain bigger, fancier pedals, man, just use the adapter that it came with. Don't try to put it on your, you know, on your brick, your power brick, just give it its own thing or else you'll be hearing a lot of digital noise. Now, do you still have to um, carry a separate uh, power strip or something with, and then plug that in and then plug no, the pedal board into just, that? Man, I do so. I know I'm geeking so, out on this pedal board. Yeah, thing, no, no, I? I do so much work and you got to keep it simple. So up underneath the power, uh, the pedal board, there's, you know, a couple of power strips 
So I just have one big cable coming off it that I have to plug into something. Yeah. So you just got to keep it simple. You know, I mean, going from one session to another, to another, to a showcase or whatever, or just, you know, whatever I can do to simplify things. Yeah, if you want and, to I, do- and I have three different pedal boards now, kind of jumbo, medium, and small. Oh, really? Okay. I used to kind of really? laugh at people with the tiny ones, but I actually have one now. And I don't really do any traveling anymore, but I've just done a couple of fly dates, mainly for this artist that I'm producing. I went up to Canada for her a couple of times and I was able to put the pedal board in my suitcase, you know. Okay, cool. And what about the um, instrument? Are you flying and, and carrying a pedal uh, steel? Flying a pedal steel is like the worst. I try to avoid that at all costs. And it's so hard on the instrument and... um frequently it can be over 50 pounds and so you pay out the butt for that um so when in doubt i always try to just show up and do dobro or or lap steel but you know i've flown with the pedal steel hundreds of times in the past one time in a huge anvil flight case thing i don't know what they did to abuse it and it sheared one of the tuning pegs clean off the instrument and i just couldn't even play the instrument when i got there speaking of tuning how do you tune your pedal steel do you have a tuner first in the chain and is it are you constantly having to, to set it? So the interesting thing about pedal steel and there is people do things differently, but I still like a needle, a tuner with a needle on it because you're having to detune or temper certain strings by certain amounts. And as well as some strings, you want it dead on. But when you press a certain pedal or knee lever down, you want it flat by 10 cents or, uh, you know, fill in the blank. So having an, and then I'm tuning so many different types of instruments as well. So having a needle tuner is great. Boss used to have those TU whatevers, and now they have a new updated version that I like just as well. Um, so what I have on my big session board, uh, there's a buffer, like one of the first or second things that the signal chain sees is a buffer that splits it off and sends it over to the tuner. So that way, if I have some pretty wacky effects engaged, I can still tune. Still a, tune, a right? Direct and you just signal. turn your volume pedal down. So you just tune the volume pedal down, and you know. Um, what what notes of a chord are requiring ten cents flat? Okay, so the thirds and sixths need to be flattened, and uh, the major seven needs to be flattened a little bit too. Um, and yeah. we don't have to get too deep into it, but um, we're you know here we are used to a division, a scale divided into 12 notes, which is equal temperament. But when we tune guitars ourselves and stuff like that, or even if we just sing harmonies, we instinctively flatten notes to get more perfect um, harmonies, right? Perfect intervals. The difference is, so with a guitar, um, you're playing in a song in D, you kind of want to flatten that top E string so it's not quite as harsh sounding. But then you go to play a G chord, then your tonic is a little bit flat. Well, with pedal steel and dobro, you're playing the same inversion at, well, theoretically, I mean, you don't have that problem. So you can go ahead and temper things to much greater extent. Oh, so you're, you're like, you're, you're always perfectly out of tune in tune, yeah, no matter where you want to go. With yourself. Now, when you get into trouble is when you have to double like a line with a keyboard or something, um, you kind of correct with the bar a little bit sometimes uh, to try to make up for your tempered strings. Oh, interesting. All right. So now let's talk about communication in the studio. So how often do you find yourself trying to sort of kind of explain that to the producer and just say, hang on, hang tight, I'll get it. 
or not, you know, not go there so at all? I, you or? know, it depends on the session. If you're overdubbing, you might retune a pedal or a string just so you can double apart and get it really nailed down. If it's a tracking day, you may not have that luxury and you just have to get as close as you can get. Yeah. All right. So that it was one of my questions. What is the difference uh, between playing pedal steel? Uh, and I, we're, we're defaulting to a lot of pedal steel questions, yeah. but why not? You know, playing pedal steel on a tracking session versus an overdub session. How does it, how does it tend to be a different experience for you as a musician? So when I was first starting, I was really scared of tracking days because you, you know, kind of have to get it right the first or second time or whatever. Um, whereas an overdub, uh, you have plenty of time theoretically. Um, however, you know, on an overdub, sometimes you have, I mean, I can recall times where I was the artist, it was a duo. And then, so you have the producer also. So you have three people telling you what to do, telling you what to play, pulling you in different directions sometimes. And it can be a real chore. You That's know? on the overdub session? Yeah. And, yeah. The overdub. and, you know, so union sessions, when you do an overdub, you are the leader. So you get paid double what you would get on a tracking day. But you deserve it because you're there just getting hammered from the second you start to the second you finish. It's you, you, you. I mean, you're playing constantly. Like you go in and do an, a double overdub session. So six hours of playing. I mean, that takes it out of you. Yeah. I mean, you're having to think, concentrate like crazy constantly. Whereas on a tracking day, you know, you'll get your part down first or second take. And then you're off drinking coffee while they're working on the second or third part for the guitar player or trying to get something else straightened out or whatever. So, um, is it, you know, uh, an overdub session, it's the focus on you and you're, it's nice cause you can really hone in on your part and get it exactly how you want it. And you have time to try different things or you can tell them, Oh yeah. Hang, stop it right here. I'm going to change my sound up for this one little section for the bridge or something. And you have, you have a lot more leeway and I think you wind up with a cooler finished product. But also, you know, tracking with a band is fun. And um, I think you kind of always rise to the occasion when you're tracking with a band. And Do, um, do you find that you tend toward different voicings and different musical choices? No, but in you, you know what? I will play less when I'm tracking with a band because I don't want to screw something. Yeah. yeah, leave room for other players. Where when you're overdubbing, you can go ahead and play more and they can always delete you later if they don't, if it's too much. Right, right. You know? So there is that thing... Um, I'll, I'll describe it from my end too. Rockstar is, you know, like if Smith's doing an overdub, we might just typically roll it a few times and, and you might play everywhere it could possibly live with the understanding that we might go through and edit it, which is cool in terms of, uh, you know, the opportunity to do something with the technology, but it's also a bit of a musical cop-out for all of us sometimes, <laughs> right? Sure. You know, But at the same time, you know, in that situation, I don't have to worry about inhibiting the guitar player from playing in certain spots because I'm overplaying and, and right, such. So, right. um, and then the, the third option, which we didn't discuss is I do a ton of remote work where people right. email me tracks and then it's in everyone's best interest if I just shit all over the hard drive, you know, and let them sort it out later because they can copy and paste stuff or delete stuff or yeah. whatever, because, they're not there to tell me what they like and what they don't like. You know, I'm going to send them two full passes, but I'm just going to play everywhere and let them sort it out later. All right. Let's give a shout out to that right now while, while people just heard that and they're like, Ooh, cool. 
So um, how do the rock stars reach out to you? If you, if people are, you know, yeah, looking for Smith Curry to be on their next record. Yeah, Lap Steel or Dobro, the type that you've heard on recordings from people like Taylor Swift and Willie Nelson and Jason Aldean, blah, blah, blah. There's me bragging. Um, yeah, Smith at smithcurry.com. Uh, you can go to smithcurry.com and see, look at some of the stuff. There. And curry spelt just like the delicious food. Yes. And I'm a big fan of curry sauce, both, you know, Indian and Thai and all that stuff. C-U-R-R-Y. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, what else do I want to ask you? Um, let's talk about, uh, you know, being an engineer producer again and giving you the best experience, you know, the, the most productive experience. Um, where do your parts where do you feel like they belong in a song production and what sort of roles can the pedal steel play? If somebody's thinking I should get pedal steel on this. Oh, you know, it just really depends. Um, somebody, uh, the fantastic, amazing artist and producer, Sean McConnell sent me something the other day. If you guys haven't heard his stuff, his new records just coming out and it's crazy. Uh, he was producing this girl and she just did, um, it was just her sitting at a piano doing uh, an old Reba cover. And um, so, I mean, it was vocals, piano, and pedal steel. And so there I'm going to really, you know, it's a three-way dialogue the whole way through, you know. So there's going to be a lot of me, and I'm going to just kind of react to everything that she's doing. Um, if it's a big, dense mix already with tons of guitars going on, and you know, keys and synths, I'm going to have to really just kind of creep in with pad type stuff on the choruses and, um, you know, maybe do something cool on the intro or, and then usually try to find a different texture for the bridge to kind of give it a scene change. Does the pedal steel ever live on the one? Yeah. I mean, it <laughs> lives everywhere, you know? Um, I don't mean the one chord. I mean the one beat, you know, of a oh. bar. I, I'm just, I'm kind of kidding around, but it's one of the things I remember noticing doing working with pedal steel is how there's like, there's a quality to kind of swell in and in. reinforce after the bar starts. You know, yeah. But cool you thing. also don't want to be too, you don't want to pussyfoot around too much either. You know, a lot of the time it'll be a big slide up into the one, you know, to, to, to create a lift going into the chorus. Yeah. Yeah. It's great for lifts for sure. Yeah. Um, any other tips about uh, the most helpful ways for pr producers to communicate with you on a session to give you the information that is helpful? Should they just shut up? I mean, this is—I don't mean this in a condescending way, but like um, just getting the nomenclature right. I had a guy, really talented guy, that's done a ton of stuff. He said, um, "Yeah, uh, I, I want you to do some lap steel on this track for me." You know, it was, it was a remote thing, and. And I, I put this distorted, you know, cool kind of David Lindley running on empty kind of, you know, thing. And he's like, no, you know, the the other thing you do. And he was, what he meant was Dobro. He wanted a clean <laughs> sounding Dobro. And I know that sounds weird, but it's, there's a lot of confusion. And people all the time say they want Dobro when they really want distorted lap steel or they don't really understand the difference between a pedal steel, a dobro, and a lap steel. Have I you guess. put little sound samples on your website? Uh, maybe I need to. Are they kind of cool? You, you click and you're like, ooh, that, I like that one. Uh, yeah, I, it's probably time for a big uh, update to the site, you know. Yeah, um, we all get need kinda that, right? so, Yeah, we all get so slammed, you know, with uh, work stuff and, and everything else that, to, to kind of do. Well, you know, the holidays, I guess, would be the time to do that, you know. Um, and then one last question about tuning. 
Uh, what should we know as far as the track, um, as far as making it easiest for you to do an overdub and 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 find the proper tune? Well, because you're listening, you're using your ear for so much. Sure, you know? but I think the other thing that I would like to say is, you know, we have to play on th- tracks that are a, a lot in the track is not very in tune to begin with. You know, and then it's easy to kind of point at the steel guitar, the fretless instrument as the, as the culprit, but playing electric guitar perfectly in tune is incredibly hard. And a lot of acoustic instruments don't intonate as well as people think they do. And so, I mean, I would just kind of put that out there for engineers and producers that tuning is such a complex subject. And, um, you know, as an engineer and producer, I've been tuning vocals a little bit lately. And that's the weirdest thing of all, because you can really, a vocal can be, you look at it in Melodyne and it looks so out of tune, but it sounds fine and Mm -hmm. vice versa, you know? So with all that stuff, you just got to use your ears. Um, Is bass a secret, the hidden culprit for tuning a lot? I don't think as much as guitars for me, you know, Uh, it can be for sure. But I, I think think most it's not as sensitive right right, right. you know because the guitars are close to your voicings yeah too. that too and they're playing more than one note at a time <laughs> i know <laughs> it's funny how an instrument two instruments uh it's the it's the combination of instruments that make things sound yep, out of tune exactly so and we you know we we're talking about with pedal steel and dobro and lap steel we i temper the strings so it's really in tune with itself and it's like that's the first priority and then how in tune with everything else it is is the second it's what the ear will notice the most is whether it's in tune with itself first because it's such a close tone yeah, yeah. and close voicing and um, it's, if it's on the steel it's coming out of the same amp too yep, yeah exactly um let's talk about your production a little bit yeah you want to do that yeah, yeah all right so um tell us uh you know anything any projects you're working well, on that you're excited a about a year ago to this month i started doing these crazy slam they're, you know, ostensibly demo sessions. People have been using them for records, which I have mixed feelings about. Um, I've just been charging, well, I'm raising it up as of the new year from $350 to $400. And you get tracks from a six-piece band. Um, and, you know, wow. it doesn't include vocals or mixing. But people throw these songs at me. I'll get them like, you know, the morning of the session. Somebody's like, hey, can I add this onto the session? And we'll do anywhere from, you know, six to 15 songs at the session. And um, we have, you know, I have just the craziest, most badass players um, and super talented tracking engineers that we can just roast through the stuff quickly, but get everything dialed in and. So we have in-town people, artists and writers come in and then a lot of mail order stuff as well. So probably did about 150 songs last year, this year, um, doing it that way. And it's been really fun ranging from, you know, crazy stuff for, you know, the the kids bop. I didn't even know this was a thing. And the younger guys on the session, it's like, oh man, we're doing a kids bop song, you know? So we did a couple for those guys. And then, um, you know, just a lot of great artists here in town. And then uh, a few Christmas singles were done that way. Um, and then just a ton of demos. You, know, um, you want to give, give a shout out to anybody as part of that process? Studio people? Um, players mostly like been over there at Benchmark with Chris Utley. He's just an insane tracking engineer. He's a killer mix engineer as well. Um, but he has that room dialed in and he is in a town of fast engineers I mean, he is the fastest, literally. That's cool. I mean, man. Uh, as soon as the song's done, 
you're like, hey, can I get the second pre-course? He's like, I already flew the first one. Like he has killer ears and he hears everything and he's able to just keep things moving that quickly. That's great. Um, so that's kind of the only way that I can do these at that price point, you know, and still come out on top. Um, and then just the normal bros on the session, they're all badass session cats, you know. That Are there, uh, you know, if you were a bass player or a drummer, it might be understood that that there was a the opposite, a, a favorite bass player or drummer that you played with a lot and really, and you guys really had a thing. Does that exist for your instrument? Are there, are there no, pairings? Not as much for my instruments, but uh, guitar players, I guess, would be the thing. Electric players, you know, because that's kind of the thing that you're most tied to is what's going to work and what isn't is kind of what the electric players do. And if you're on a session with two electric players and a steel and you're the steel player, that gets hard. Uh, it gets hard to find find your spot. Um, that you know, a lot of the time it was an electric player and a steel player, and then they started doing two electric players and a steel player. And then a lot of sessions, it's just two electric players and no steel player. And, or a lot of times we're just, they track and then we're overdubbing on, you know, they do a record and then we overdub on three songs or whatever. But um, in some more traditional country arrangements, you know, if you've got like a fiddle player too and stuff like that, there's this classic uh, production approach of there's little holes in between and somebody tr somebody takes the moment. Is there like, are there default yeah, locations so like the, for the steel yeah, moment? Steel would be on the choruses and the fiddle on the verses. You know, that's a super common thing. And then old school, or I mean, not even that old, but going back, you know, 15 years, piano fills on verse two, you know. Um, but the role of the keyword players changed drastically in the last, five years as the EDM influences and stuff have come in. Sure. Yeah, yeah sure. So, so interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I, I can see how a pedal steel has this, um, quality that can fill up the sound in a nice way, like an organ overdub, you know, sure. same thing. You might go organ in the chorus. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, the B3 takes up a lot of room sonically. So like it's, you can't have much of that in your mix or else you, it just kind of pushes everything else out. Yeah. And even so B3 is on so many pop country things these days. But if you listen, it's really quiet in the mix. because It's not wider shade of pale. No. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, let's hit some of our closing questions here. Uh, when you started out doing this, what do you think was holding you back? I don't think it was holding me back. I, I think, you know, people always say dream big, you know, uh, you know, shoot for the moon and I kind of did the opposite. I like, I thought, man, if I could just make a living at it, that would be awesome. And then, you know, how I mentioned earlier, then it's like, well, if I could get a decent country gig, that would be cool. And so, I mean, I, I don't know that you have to dream big to achieve, you know, I feel like things have been really good for me, way beyond my wildest expectations going into it. So, um, I just I thought it was kind of funny. You know, people always talk about, you know, aim as high as possible. I was like, man, just kind of shoot for the next thing and see where it leads you and then shoot for the next thing after that. Uh, do you have anything that you remember where you're like, I've been doing this for a long time. Wow. Now I can play this. And when I started, I couldn't play that at all. Yeah. I mean, I just never thought I would be able to, I never thought I'd be able to play pedal steel because it just seemed way too complicated. And then well, it, I never, well, it is, it is way too complicated. It and it's only through just thousands of hours that you can do it. I mean, there's no, um, but you know, just, I never thought I'd be playing on, you know, major label sessions, you know, that just seemed so hard. And like the guys had to be so good for that. 
So it's just kind of take one thing at a time. And then the next thing, you know, is always it's baby steps. You know, I've done a lot of mountaineering over the years and rock climbing and stuff. And you can be either at the base of a climb or partway up one and you look up and it's just an impossible amount of super difficult and dangerous climbing ahead of you. And you just have to stop and only look at the next 20 feet, you know, and then look at the next 20 feet. You break it down into sizable increments. I'm already scared just picturing <laughs> it, dude. Yeah. Don't so, look down. Yeah. Uh, looking down is okay, but just only think about the next little step ahead of you, you know, if you try to worry about all that. You know, I, I was fortunate enough. Um, this record just came out a few months ago, this uh, Roger Miller tribute record. And, um, I wound up playing on a track with uh, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, and Chris Christopherson, another track with uh, Allison Krauss and Dolly Parton, and another track um, with just a whole slew of old, super famous Opry stars. And it's like, man, I mean, I never thought in a million years I'd play on a track with Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson. You know? That's great, man. So. Um, well, make sure you tether yourself in because we need you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ever since I had a, you know, I have a four-year-old now. I don't do much, too much free soloing after that. So uh, Nashville's uh, got, you know, our our climbing gyms now. We got a couple of climbing gyms. Yeah, that are pretty great. yeah, it's an old friend of mine, Lance, that started that. That's cool. All right, um, some of the best advice you received. Gosh, good question. Um, any, any mentors in the pedal steel world? Yeah, man, uh, just everybody. All the pedal steel players in the studio are super cool guys, man. There's uh, not really much competition or ill will at all. And everybody's kind of, everybody, early on, everybody that I asked was super willing to kind of show me stuff. Um, I think it's kind of such an odd, weird thing that nobody does that uh, people are more likely to kind of stick together and help yeah. each other out. Bonding. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, how about a re recording tip hack or secret sauce, something uh, that the rock stars could use on their next session? Um, well, uh, I got to admit for mixing stuff, which I don't do a ton of, the isotope stuff like ozone and neutron both are super useful and helpful. I mean, uh, yeah, man. Um you want to describe Neutron? How do you use it? Neutron, I used to use it more on the two mix, and now I just use Ozone on the two mix. Even though they bill it as a mastering thing, uh, it's invaluable just for mixing and just kind of um, getting your overall levels in different frequencies right. And as far as uh, compression and just kind of everything else, man, uh, the, you know, the track assistant kind of, machine learning stuff that they have on there really, really does help. Um, Neutron, I use more on single tracks now, like really dialing in the bass guitar and stuff. They have, you know, different presets that you can get a lot more growl out of the bass or stuff like that. Um, you just kind of cycle through and then tweak it once you find a preset that's that's cool. That's cool. Um, I haven't used it yet, but I'm, I'm very intrigued. Oh, by man. I just, just, I, I bought... It started out with Neutron. I bought the Elements version, the cheap version, and just minutes later, I went and got the full version after trying it for a second. And That's then, great. Um, just you know, with all that stuff, wait till the sales come along, or buy the cheap version and wait till the upgrade sale comes along. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've been that stuff's been invaluable to me. Maybe 
really hardcore great mix engineers don't need that stuff as much as it's gonna I be do. all over our voices on this podcast. <laughs> I use uh, RX. Um, yeah, I guess RX is the one I'll be using for this. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a big fan of what that company does. But um, uh, Warm Audio, all their gear is so great and so cheap. It's just yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, you talked about the WA2A. Yeah, I have, I kind of have, you go into my studio and it's kind of like an advertisement for Warm Audio. I have their uh, U47 um, and the 47 Juniors, which I like. They're pretty mid-rangey, but they're still great. Uh, but the 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 47 proper, the tube mic is fantastic. Uh, the API 312 that they make is fantastic. Nice. And the 1176 that I have is, is great too. Yeah, and I, just, I mean, just ridiculous pricing on well-made gear. It's so. kind of nice when, when, you know, it's affordable to the musician. Oh, it's, you know, hey, you know, <laughs> exactly. Because we're yeah. going to, we're the ones that are going to use it. Um, all right. Uh, any other software tools you want to give a shout out to? Gosh, well, I was thinking of a couple before I came in. Um, what, you do know, you record into Pro Tools? What's that? Are you using Pro I Tools? I am on Pro Tools. Uh, you know, a little bummed I went to the subscription system. Uh, it's a little, little, a little expensive. You know, I don't think they need to, they should be a little bit better to their cl uh, clientele, but uh, it's great. I mean, it's the, it's, if you're in Nashville recording, you kind of have to be on Pro right, Tools. Right, that's what everybody's using. Everybody's using it. And it's, I mean, it's a great program. I, you know, I see people complaining about it crashing. That really never happens with me. Maybe I'm not doing. Luckily, it. it didn't happen to us just now in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it did yesterday morning. But that was because my hard drive filled up. Yeah, um, you know, uh, I, I I went over to the Apollo stuff uh, a year and a half ago, and all the Universal Audio plugins are amazing. Yeah, they're cripplingly expensive, but they're fantastic. Cripplingly I mean, good. They are, they really are. So, I mean, it's just worth it, you know, uh, cool. all this stuff's fantastic. All right. Now, how about a, a resource or a tip for the business side of doing this? If we want to do this for more yeah, than just a I'm hobby. I'm not the guy. I'm the worst businessman ever. I'm absolutely terrible. Um, um, what about uh, any advice as far as, you know, you do go from session to session. You you keep a lot of things, plates balanced, I guess, you or however you want to describe I mean, it. That's just been a learning curve, just making sure you're showing up someplace with everything you need, uh, especially, you know, go to a session go to another session and then maybe go play a showcase or something. And you kind of, before leaving the house, you have to just kind of think ahead. And then I know this sounds kind of stupid, but packing the back of your truck the same way every time. So you'll notice if something's missing. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just inevitable, like once a year, maybe once every two years, a frantic call to the wife, Oh shit. Can you bring, you know, my such and such to the studio? Cause you know, I mean, it's, it's just going to be inevitable or, Hey bro, can I borrow your Stratocaster on this track? You know, yeah. as the guitar player, but, um, yeah. Cause you probably have to bring a lot of things if you're bringing uh, guitars. And I mean, sometimes I basically feel like a cartridge guy that occasionally plays, you know, wow. I mean, a lot of gear schlepping, but you know, if I ever start to feel if I ever complain about work stuff, my wife is really quick to remind me how good I have it and how amazing my job is. But I also do occasionally, if I'm schlepping a lot of gear, think back to, you know, my early 20s when I had some just truly horrible day jobs before music started to pay for <laughs> itself. And it's, it's pretty, pretty quickly remind me, you know, uh, and, you know, the busier you get, the less chance you have to get to the gym. So schlepping all that gear kind of nice. helps Nice. So you, you hitting the gym? Oh yeah. Gym and climbing gym and trail running. Those are my three things. Okay, cool. 
How, uh, how do, do you have any more tips about just keeping that balance of health and work together? It's in super life? important. Um, and I'm not always good at, at it. I try to be showing up to a session when you're really exhausted or hungover is a big no, no. And it, it, you know, I'm not saying I've never showed up like that on pedal steel. The right hand is so finicky and delicate. If you're hungover, man, you are not going to play well. And yeah, it could just be exhaustion or, you know, having trouble with your girlfriend or wife or whatever, just trying to get in the right headspace and trying to focus. Um, sometimes I found just taking a deep breath, you know, yeah, really can center you. But I think session players by our nature are usually good at just kind of pushing everything else out of their brains and focusing on what's going on, you know? Well, there was the advent of the the smartphone too. That didn't, oh, we didn't start God. out with that. And now I, there's and there. I am, I'm, I am bad with it. I am, uh, you know, I'm an easily bored type guy and I like interesting things, reading stuff. And so, um, you know, and the appearances, you know, on a session being kind of looking at your phone too much, you know, pretty unprofessional. But there is one thing that came along with the smartphone that I thought was unexpected. Did you notice that that um, battery-powered tuners started evaporating from studios? Yeah, there's the tuners and then certain effects units you can control using your phone. But I think the optics of it are kind of bad, right? It looks like you're just dicking off on your phone right in the <laughs> right. middle of the session, yeah, you know? Probably. I mean, really, seriously. And uh, it's funny... Um, I was playing the Grand Ole Opry with Pam Tillis and her husband had one of those effects pedals that uh, I think it was a TC Electronics. They make great stuff. And uh, he goes, man, have you seen this? I go, yeah, but it looks kind of bad. You got to be on your phone all the time to change everything. He goes, yeah, but, and then like right after that, Pam was like, honey, can you stop looking at your phone? We need to focus here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So rock stars get an iPad because everybody understands that an iPad is looking at a chart. Yeah. There you go. And I, I'm still old school. When I do play shows out for folks, I have pay, I write out paper charts. I haven't converted to the iPad yet. I don't well, know. I'll tell you, a paper chart looks a lot cooler when you spill your beer on it than an iPad does. <laughs> uh, but I go through the same thing. I'll have an intern and I'll be like, you know, I turn around and they're looking at it. I'm like, I'm like, what are you doing? I, I don't, I don't go right into it. I just like try and like catch them off guard. What are you doing? And then it's like, oh, I was looking up that thing you just told me to look up. Uh, but oh, you sorry. know, if you. If you have the focus and the energy, every time you're on a session, there's something you could be paying more attention to than your phone and learning from, like exactly what's going on with the kick drum here. You know, especially, you know, I'm producing more now. Every time you're on a session, there's something you should be paying attention to and learning from. And, you know, you don't always have the mental energy to do that kind of thing, but probably better than looking at Instagram. And here we are having looked at a lot of kick drums in our life and taking the opportunity to look at the pedal steel very closely and carefully. So it's awesome. Um, all right. So let's jump to, uh, well, let me ask you this question. Any other, um, tips you've got for staying organized and keeping all your shit together for us? No, I'm really the wrong guy to ask about all that right. stuff. All right. um, well, I like, I like your very practical ones, like pack the truck the same way. So at a glance, yeah. you know what it looks like it, when you're wiring your pedal board, you know, uh, you put know, in the, the extra other thing to go have somebody do punctuality. it. I'm like, I, as I've already kind of suggested, I'm not the most meticulous guy um, with stuff in general. But man, just God, just show up on time. A few minutes early, ten minutes early is on time. Especially if you got to build a pedal steel. Yeah. Well, then yeah, <laughs> it's twenty minutes, half hour. But show up on time with your gear working. I mean, geez, like. 
I've had so many friends over the years, brilliant musicians, and their careers have haven't gone anywhere because they just it's the easiest thing in the world compared with learning an instrument and everything else. Just show up on time with your shit working, man. Come on. Yeah, yeah. You know, have a little self-respect. And then just, you know, being respectful of other people's time, you know. That's a good tip. And I think um, a thing to remember is that at the point at which you're, you know, paying for something to be repaired so that it's working better or hiring somebody to wire something for you or go through it, um, it can feel like, uh, this is expensive. You know, nobody else is paying for this, but right. it's, but it, it will turn around and, and be Save a real you. positive yeah. thing. And, and that actually does become a thing when you get really, really slammed, um, trying to maintain your gear yourself enough to the point where you don't get in trouble on a session with something not working right. Um, changing strings. I changed so many strings and, um, so I didn't do, you have to change pedal steel strings? Often? I, some people do a lot less than I do. I usually do it every week on my main one. The one that stays at the house, I do remote work with a lot less. I don't know if it's because I don't sweat at the house, might be, but I feel like they really lose their kind of snap and crispness pretty quickly. And so interesting. And unlike, you know, an old Gibson J45 acoustic where you want it to be sound kind of exactly gritty and, yeah. you know, bot like Bob Dylan's. You want it punchy and same with Dobro strings for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go to the last question. We can take the way back studio machine and you're going to go back and find young Smith and say, dude, um, I know Jerry's real good and you're watching him now, but I want to give you this one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day. What advice would you go back and give yourself if you could? I don't know if it'd be one thing, but I mean, just, I wish I could go back. I didn't think any of the stuff that I have achieved would be possible in the slightest bit. And I didn't throw myself into music the way I could have at a young age because I had so many people tell me that it was just an unrealistic dream. And I, you know, I did well in school. And so I had options, you know, too. That was the other thing, you know. Um, and I didn't know anybody that was a musician or a professional musician or did well. And so uh, that was a little unfortunate. I feel like I could be so much further along had that happened. And then the other thing would be, um, I would tell myself, pay more attention to the songwriters, you know, when I was getting into starting to get into recording work and then especially now producing and stuff because songwriters are artists and vice versa and the demo work and just kind of everything flows from that, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of them are horrible musicians and a lot of them are a lot of the somewhat more successful ones are maybe just guys that are in the right room at the right time. But a lot of them are just Nashville has so much talent and it's, uh, I, I do all these writers nights with them now and I have such a great time. I've been writing a fair amount as well. Had some success a bit lately with Correct. that. Um, but, uh, it kind of, you know, the Nashville songwriters, uh, NSAI, they say their, their slogan is it all begins with a song. And, you know, the session player me is like, well, it all begins with a good hook that the session player comes up with and the bridge that we fixed that you guys didn't know how to write. But man, uh, the number one thing of whether something makes it on the charts is the song. It's not the singer. It's not the production. As much as I hate to say, it's not the playing. It's not the production. It's not the mix. Um, I could name some names. One of the biggest breakout stars of this last year, the record sounded horrible. The singer's a good singer, but I mean, it's just, 
people liked the song and they seemed like the artist was like a guy they would just go have a beer with and they just clicked with them and um you know and so, so it takes off yeah so well that's cool especially I, I, in nashville where there's that real flow of song to session to label and all i mean that. everything's important i don't want to discourage all of us from you know being the best mix engineer we can be and everything else all that stuff matters of course um but that's good advice and i've heard that uh over and over again from people is like you you want to be excellent at your craft but you also want to align yourself with other people that are excellent at their craft. And, and just, you know. man, network, network, network. And it doesn't have to be stupid, cheesy network. These people are all my friends. I did the Nashville Drummers Jam last night, and I saw friends. I saw at least 15 people that I've been friends with at least 10 or 15 years, and some that I've been friends with longer than that. And it's awesome to see those people and to be friends with that many people, you know. Um, and so... There doesn't have to be anything cheesy or lame or stupid about networking. You're not pressing your business card into strangers' hands constantly. You know, it's just about staying in touch with your friends. Yeah, right. But but it's all about those connections. Yeah. I mean, success is all about that. Dig it. Well, let's make some more connections from you for you. How can the rock stars find you online, follow you, reach out to you? And connect with you. Uh, I think my Facebook is just Smith Curry, um, but I think I'm at my right at my five thousand friend limit, unfortunately. But you can still follow me. And then uh, my Instagram is Smith underscore Curry underscore Rocks. I think I just kind of did it as a fluke, and I was like regretting it later when Instagram became kind of a the primary platform. But whatever. Yeah, um, we all face that. I guess the lesson there is. Every time you pick a social media name, think about it being the most important thing possibly. I know. And I think Smith Curry was taken somehow, which seems super unlikely, but maybe, yeah, I don't know, but I can't remember. But yeah, anyhow, look me up and you can always uh, just email me uh, at my website, you know. And what was your email address again? Smith at smithcurry.com. Okay, cool. And I think if you go to the website, you'll, you'll, you can click on it. Yeah. So Rockstars, go check out his work because it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, you might be able to get some really amazing music on at overdubs, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Come remotely. on. I love doing stuff. Um, you know, doing stuff from the house is so much fun. You can, if you have time, you can sit there and really push yourself to come up with stuff that's different for you and come up with new tones. And if you don't have time, you just do a great job and make the person happy and, you know, work it around all your other work. So it's a, it's, I think that's doing stuff from the house, help my playing like, more than any other thing, because you can sit there and really hear how it's sitting in the track, how it's working with other instruments in a way that when you're at the studio, you, you don't have that luxury. Dig it. Well, thank you so much for being on Recording yeah, Studio Rockstars with us, fun. dude. Super awesome, man. And you shared a lot of really great insights and a lot of cool tips. Love it. Cool. Thanks, Thanks dude. for having me. We'll see you around the studio. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. Also, remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with these weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my 
free mixing course at mixmasterbundle.com. Look for the link in the show notes. And if you want more free content from Recording Studio Rockstars, all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com slash email. Again, that's rsrockstars.com slash email to enter your name and email, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, podcast updates, and even free gear giveaways for your studio, all totally free. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a rock star. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.